You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. To episode 90 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Michael Farmer. I am an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And joining me, as in all of our non-point episodes, uh, is Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? I am doing well. This is the first semester I've actually experienced what it's like to come up on the end of a semester without dissertation guilt. And it's glorious. Mm, I bet. <laughs> I, I bet. Uh, also joining us is David Grubbs, who is a professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, not McPherson, Kansas. David, do you Hello. feel the uh, dissertation guilt? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> one one of these days, I, I'm when I come to that defense, I can only imagine it must be like, you know, like. Like Christian walking up to the hill of the cross and Pilgrim's Progress and the great bundle on his back just falling off. I can only imagine what it must be like. I remember I uh, I was down to the wire on my uh, master's thesis. I, I had already been accepted into UGA, and so I uh, defended it over the phone. And uh, I had so few days left to send it in that I had to print it out and send it next day air, which costs like $75 for a paper that size. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, it was worth it, though. It was worth every penny. Yep. So, yep. anyway. This is just to say. Do we have any uh, listener feedback <laughs> from last week's episode? Uh, you know, I haven't even looked to see if anyone's commented on it. I don't remember any. David, do you remember any comments on the blog? Um, well, since you responded to some of them, I would hope that you'd remember. Oh, goodness. It well, is that and, time of the semester. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's end of semester memory talking right there. Yes, all right. So uh, Jonas and Charles both responded there. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Charles actually followed our instructions not mm-hmm. to, you know, not to keep listening, but to go on and read. So, you know, kudos there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh Jake Man Spiff, which I can only assume is a, is sidling up next to a Calvin and Hobbes reference. Maybe that is his <laughs> given name. Well, it makes me think of Spaceman Spiff. I thought Jake was short for Jake Man. <laughs> what? I well, clearly you know a different set of Jakes than I do. Anyway, he's 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 wanting us to set uh, Good Man is hard to find next to Truman Capote's in Cold Blood. This would be Which... great if I had read that book. <laughs> okay, my, my... and so our, our Americanist hasn't read that one, so just take a guess on our two medievalists. 
my wife did, and she recommends it. I'm afraid okay. to read that book. But then she has she has a somewhat macabre taste for lit anyway. I mean, I mean her dissertation is going to be about dead baby poems for crying out loud. Is it really? Oh yeah. Is every epigraph for every chapter a dead baby joke? No. <laughs> See, I'm full of good ideas. Yeah, I was gonna, uh, that's funny, Michael. I was just going to say you're full of something. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we did we did get some response on Flannery O'Connor. Oh. We also got um, a whole lot of response on Facebook uh, when we were announcing that it was on the way. A whole lot of people were like, we're so excited and liking it and all the rest of it. So even if we haven't got feedback comments, we did have a lot of anticipation. Right. And so then they discovered that, that I was off. at the helm, and they said, "Oh no!" <laughs> <laughs> I, I do apologize. I don't. I don't remember editing that episode. I know I must have. We recorded it the same day it went live, which is what happens when it goes live on Tuesday nights. And uh, so, if it seemed sloppily edited, that's why I apologize. Well, we also had repeated issues during the recording thereof. Yeah. Yeah, it so. was a long day last Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, hey. And I, and I should also say on a tangential matter, not directly user feedback, that uh, the Christian Humanist Chess League has started with uh, two players so far, myself and Charles Hackney, and he has uh, handled me readily in one game and is closing in on a kill in the second one. Uh, it seems that I am out of my league in this league. Where are you, where are you playing this? Chess.com. Okay. I didn't know if you were sending letters through the mail. No, no. <laughs> it seems like something you would do. We've gone digital. They just digital. dial each other up and name their move. <laughs> it's all in their head. Well, I will remember that and not join that league. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Can, can anybody join it, Nathan? Is it just you just go to chess.com? And... Oh, I mean, there's no actual league. It's just two of us playing and, oh, okay. you know. After he beats me, I request a rematch, and then he beats me again, and I request a rematch, and so on and so forth. Awesome. Well, whatever doesn't kill you. (laughs) And if it does? Then he's invested way too much into chess. There you go. Well, uh, I picked our topic today, and I picked it the way David Grubbs often picks topics, which is I looked at the calendar to see the day it would be coming out, and it happened to be uh, the day that Pope Urban II declared the first crusade ago so we're talking about the crusades um yeah. so let's just dive into it david you are our expert on the medieval era i will confess i know very little about the background of the crusades what can you tell me about world politics in the 11th century and what is it that leads up to the first crusade in 1095 mm. first um a little bit on how difficult it is to do history of the crusades um I mean, it, it, even if you say you know very little about the background of the of the Crusades, um, I think most of us have a good notion of why doing doing history in the Crusades is um, what's the word fraught. I think that's the word. Um, yeah, the, it, it, it's 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 tough to do. Um, there are lots of different perspectives on what what shaped them up. There, there's kind of the received history of chronicles, crusading chronicles themselves, and then coupled with the hearty skepticism, especially of the late uh, late 19th and early 20th century, um, 
things seem to be cycling back around though um, as uh, a trend in 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 history um, in the past I don't know maybe 20 30 years uh, has allowed a little more respect for religion as a motivation um, that uh, that that stated religious motivations aren't always considered to be pretexts and maybe maybe somebody somewhere actually did something for a really religious reason and uh, the book that uh, I'm primarily relying on uh, takes that perspective um, it's reading reading original sources with um, with a critical eye but not so critical that it's completely discounting everything they say and looking for the socioeconomic uh, condition that's really causing it, uh, that's really causing the crusades for which uh, all of these religious reasons are mere pretexts. Um, it's Andrew, I can't pronounce it, looks Polish, Andrew Jatishki, J-O-T-I-S-C-H-K-Y. Anyway, he's, he's uh, a British fellow, and the book is entitled Crusading and the Crusader States. It's a pretty good um, kind of introductory work. Anywho, um, what leads up to the Crusades? There's both a situation in the West and in the East um, that that lead up to it. Uh, East e the the Christian Christian European um, kingdoms were not always and constantly at war with uh, what was at that time Muslim North Africa and uh, the Muslim Levant. Um, you know, there, that, that began at a particular time. Um, now, in the time of, well, we're going to get to Charlemagne eventually, but in the time of Charlemagne's granddad, Charles Martel, um, North African, uh, the, there was uh, an excursion of, of uh, Muslims from North Africa to, uh, to take Spain, and then they pushed into France and were pushed back out again. So there was a, um, for the crusade, um, continual effort by the kingdoms in northern Spain to retake the Iberian Peninsula. Um, and occasionally knights from, from France would go pitch in with that, but there doesn't appear to have been any kind of concerted effort into that, from what I can tell. Um, again, accounts on that vary. But there was, um, in, in Christendom, a general alliance between the crown and the church. Um, the notion of using military force against uh, people groups who were also seen as um, threats to Christendom was not unusual. Uh, we see that in Charlemagne's, uh, Charlemagne's wars against the various pagan German tribes. So even while uh, Anglo-Saxon Christian missionaries like Boniface and Rillabroard are wandering among uh, the pagan Germans, chopping down their sacred oaks and such like that. Um, Charlemagne is also um, conquering them uh, and subjugating them that way as well. So it wasn't that unusual um, to, to see um, the drawing of swords with, with a, uh, at least a stated religious motivation. Um, 
so so that's that's in the west they tend to like war um they've got this situation going on in spain a lot of the accounts that i've read um make much of the fact that things were actually pretty quiet in the centuries leading up to um leading up to the uh the first crusade between east and west and in that there there wasn't a lot of friction between between the Christian West and um, Muslim states, and that 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 is true. Um, the uh, at that time the two the two centers of Islam, um, Islamic uh, political power were Cairo and Baghdad, and the push through North Africa and the push up north through the Levant into Asia Minor that typified. Um, the few centuries after the founding of Islam um, had kind of trickled out. Right? They they weren't they weren't making that push anymore. Um, and so a lot of the, the the accounts that I've read make much of the fact that things were peaceful at the time, and so the Crusades, for for you know for that reason, you know are are said to to not really make sense. You know, um, clear clearly the Muslims were not a threat anymore because it had been a few hundred years since they. would since they did anything that was actively threatening, um, the problem with that is both in both East and West memories were long. Mm-hmm. Um, European Christians could remember a time when North Africa was inhabited pe- by people like Anth- Saint Anthony of the desert in Egypt and Augustine of Hippo in Carthage. Um, they could remember a time when uh, Palestine and uh, Jerusalem was a place where bishops ruled, um, and they remembered um, they remembered Charles Martel. They remembered Charlemagne's um, uh, attempts to help out, you know, the, the Spanish kingdoms in northern and uh, northern Spain. Um, you know, the mem- memories were longer back then. You, you know, something didn't have to happen, you know, six months ago in order to, for it to be considered relevant. You, something you, you, that say, happened- you, you, say, you say memory, but really what you're talking about is a combination of memory and legend. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, a, a, absolutely. That these are, these are memories that are actually oral history that is colored as it as it goes right you know, and, and we can see something like this more recently you know i mean a lot of times saddam hussein would style himself as a latter-day saladin mm-hmm. right right i mean I, I honestly i think the the outlier here is the modern west that has such a such a close horizon historically that tends to think its own day is the one that can buck history um, and that, you know, events that are, you know, 50 years or more old, you know, obviously their expiration date has already passed. And so they are no longer relevant. Um, you know, that, that isn't the way, <laughs> that isn't the way medieval Europeans or, you know, medieval Muslims thought they all had mm-hmm. long. And, well, you know, you know, the, I think, I think, the American political scene is is full of people who have that semi mythic, semi remembered <laughs> um, yeah. conception of the past, right? I mean, if you think about how people talk about the quote unquote founding fathers, right? 
No, that's true. That's true. Or, I mean, or, I'm or just... the way, or the way uh, to to put it on the right or to the left as well as the right. That thing about the way Obama talked about Lincoln in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. We 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 invoke these people not not wholly as legendary figures, not the way you might invoke. Uh, Beowulf. King Arthur. Yeah, I was going to say King Arthur, and then I was like, well, he's going to tell me that King Arthur was also <laughs> a real person. Um, but but you, you invoke them also not as you would invoke someone who spoke last week. It is it is a, a figure that is simultaneously mythic and real. Well, I'm I'm, I'm trying. I'm I'm thinking of of uh, you know the 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 kind of easy dismissal of things like. Um, well, why why we gotta why we gotta be so upset about, you know, you know this or that issue because that was settled before I was born, and so we need not talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Anyway, I, I, all, all all that to say this, I'm somewhat skeptical when when even this book says um, that. Uh, that there's something kind of baffling about about the the first crusade. Now in in the east um now the west, the west had this perception of, you know, it's just a whole lot of muslims. Look at all of them over there. Look at all them muslims. Um <laughs> but there were um there were distinct centers of power and those centers of power were in friction. Um in Cairo, uh you had the uh, Shiite Muslim uh, Fatimid dynasty, and in Baghdad, the Sunni Muslim Abbasid dynasty. Um, these these two factions with Islam go all the way back to um, the dissension over who was to succeed Muhammad after he died. Um, so you had these two rival um, Abu Bakr. Yeah, two two rival caliphs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any chance I get to say that? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Say it again. Abu Bakr. Awesome. Um, yeah, so you had the, the, these, these two rival uh, caliphates, each claiming to be the ones who, who speak for the prophet, each claiming to be the center of power. And, you know, they went back and forth, you know, militarily. And Palestine, um, Jer- where, where Jerusalem was, was one of the places that was constantly changing hands. Um, but then the Turks up in the north, um, who were Sunni, they they started to flex, and uh, the problem with the Turks is that they weren't um, they weren't as mannerly as either the you know the Abbasids of Baghdad or the Fatimids of Cairo. Um, they were, I, you know, if you translate them. You know, to these days, the Turks were basically a biker gang or a bunch of, you know, cowboys, you know, mm-hmm. riders shooting their guns. Um, you know, they were kind of like Cossacks or something. Anyway, the one of the things the Turks liked to do was harass pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, Christian pilgrims. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that that was something that was growing in the West was this perception that making your pilgrimage pilgrimage Jerusalem, which was popular at the time, um, was getting more and more difficult. Um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was destroyed in one of those um, transitions between Abbasid control and Fatimid control, 
Uh, it was then rebuilt later, um, but the memory of getting it knocked down was the one that stuck, not the one of it getting rebuilt. So when, the, so by the time you get to, um, you know, 1095, when Urban um, preaches his famous sermon, which you know we'll hear about, um, this the the perception in the West was that um, those who were in charge of Jerusalem are are harassing Christians. Um, it was perceived as something that was official, even though it probably wasn't. Um, the memory of the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre was there. Also, uh, the Turks were threatening the Byzantine Empire, and their emperor was sending letters to the Pope saying, help! Um, the problem was, again, I think that you know, in the West, they didn't have a really clear um, notion that you know, of, of all of these different groups that were over there in the East. And as a result, when the Greek emperor says, help the Turks, Europe says, ah, so now, now this means we go to war with Muslims, right? Um, so yeah, I, I know, I know I'm broad brushing it a bit, but you know, <laughs> yeah, we need to move to another question. Yeah, we do. I, let's do, let's do that. Um, the Crusades are unthinkable without Pope Urban II. He has become strikingly unpopular in a century since. But Nathan, how much of that reputation is deserved? Can you attack or defend him? Uh, I would say that, you know, if you consider the Crusades, you know, one of the great crimes of Christianity, then uh, there's really no escaping Urban's influence in it. Uh, you know, I mean, as far as, you know, did he at the time have the same ideology moving him as 20th century, you know, conquerors and genocidals. No, he didn't. I mean, so it's one of those things where, again, your philosophy of history is really going to motivate the way that you think about Urban II. So let me talk a little bit about his background. Uh, he is born to, you know, a not a family of nobility, but also not a commoner family, somewhere in between. Uh, various sources that I looked at, you know, identify it as either a genteel family or a knightly family. Uh, he is one who comes to the papal throne, uh, as with a lot of folks in the high middle ages through a great deal of controversy, violence. Uh, there is a rival to the papal throne, uh, who, you know, comes to be known to history as the anti-pope. Um, but I mean, you know, he comes to be the Bishop of Rome, you know, amid great tumult, uh, when he finally does secure power. I mean, he's involved really in a lot of projects. I mean, he, uh, he sort of institutes and, you know, reinforces a lot of the things that the popes before him were interested in doing. But what he's famous for, of course, is receiving this envoy from Alexius of Constantinople, the, uh, the emperor of the Roman empire. And remember that, you know, the, Roman Empire only ends in the 5th century if you are living in France. Uh, if you are in what was the Eastern Empire, uh, it persists really all the way up till 1453 uh, with its seat at Constantinople rather than Rome. Uh, and so this emperor, you know, sends him urgent letters uh, saying that these Turks, you know, the, the, the biker gang that David mentioned, uh, were on their way. They were, you know raising up armies. They were a great threat. 
Uh, and basically he was asking the Pope to rally troops uh, to help him out. So, uh, again, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's hard for us to imagine since we are in a modern, really, I mean, late modern, uh, mechanized empire uh, where you can get a quarter of a million troops, you know, to any spot in the globe within seven days. Uh, it takes several months between the receipt of these letters and the launch of the first crusade, but the famous speech that he gives, uh, people say that Urban, you know, preached the crusade. Uh, it's recorded by a monk named Robert several years after the fact. Uh, but the upshot of this sermon he gives when he gathers the bishops together to talk about this urgent situation, uh, he says a few things. And I mean, David uh, gives the outlines of, you know, the situation he describes. First of all, he says that uh, the Church of the Sepulcher has been destroyed. Uh, that cannot stand. Uh, second of all, the Holy Land, the place where, you know, Jesus walked and taught, uh, is being controlled by, I mean, he refers to them as, you know, basically a, an accursed race, uh, a people who are basically spawn of Satan, who torture people, who worship pagan gods. Uh, you know, there's no real modern sense that, you know, there's any kind of relationship between the Muslim tradition and the Christian tradition. Uh, you know, I mean, it is this basically devil people who are taking over this land. And moreover, uh, the same people, and David's absolutely right, for the West, it's just a whole bunch of Muslims. Um, the same people are threatening Constantinople, the seat of the Roman Empire, you know, the place where uh, Christianity took its roots. So basically he makes this offer. Uh, he says that, you know, first of all, quoting the gospel, uh, the one who loves his wife or his family or his land more than me is not worthy to inherit the kingdom. And the way that he immediately translates that is, if you are a man of fighting age and you're not willing to leave your family and your property to go fight in the Crusades, then you're not Jesus-y enough. Um, <laughs> which, again, you know, to modern WJBJD. ears. WJBJD. Yeah, to modern <laughs> ears, mine included, that is monstrous. But, you know, I mean... Uh, yeah, but you hate the Crusades more than you love Jesus. Well, yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> you know, Michael, our listeners who, well, no, I, I think we've repeated that joke enough now that it's sort of taken on a life of its own beyond the initial Facebook exchange. But um, at any rate, so he sends them, he says that, you know, uh, anyone who goes uh, is basically going on a sacramental journey uh, that the, the, armed ex the armed expedition to reclaim the Holy Land to fight off the Turks uh, is something akin to the confession of sins, so yeah. that if you die in the process of co of combat, uh, your sins are forgiven, uh, you will enter straight into heaven. There's a purgatorial concept, at least implied in there, uh, that you will bypass if you are a crusader. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, po Pope Urban, like I said, uh, I mean, I, th I think it is impossible to say anything nicer than he profoundly differs from what I would call, you know, a, a historical reading of the call of Jesus. You know, uh, this is not a call to take up your cross and follow. This is a call to take up your sword and, 
drive out the pagans, you know, which I teach the New Testament a fair bit. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus was about. So, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I am uh, either insufficiently medieval to grasp this, or if I am sufficiently medieval, I am excessively monastic in my sensibility because, you know, when I take a look at Urban, I mean, I have to point to that speech and say, all right, you know, this is one of those instances where the text of the gospel is there and then it takes a swerve that, you know, you can't account for in terms of reading the gospel. Uh, David, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I racked my brain to try to say something nice about Urban. Am I missing something here that I should be paying attention to? <laughs> I think he is uni- pretty much universally loathed. Um, uh, about the, I mean, his, his reforms of, you know, monastic orders and things, I can say, okay, before he started doing this crusade stuff, he was mm-hmm. doing some things I could get behind, but once he starts, you know, talking about the spawn of Satan and all your sins are forgiven if you kill enough of them, I I I can't follow that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, about, about the best that you can say is, you know, thanks, Urban, for giving Europeans a chance to fight somebody other than their neighbors. Yeah, but, I mean, I guess if you're looking for a silver lining, there's that. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean. You know, talk about damning with faint praise. Yeah. <laughs> so, I the the I mean spoken the, the, by another pope. That to me is really the worst thing about the Crusades, and we'll, and we'll 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 talk about that. But you know, to me, the 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 theology behind it is is the most monstrous thing. Um, yeah. Anybody that knows anything about medieval warfare. Um, knows that medieval warfare conducted by whomever for whatever reason was terrible. Mm-hmm. But the theology is uh, the theology is is to me what's what's exceptional here. And thanks, Urban, for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, actually, David, that makes me feel better because I I was afraid that I was going to come across as the crazy hippie Anabaptist wannabe here, and yeah. <laughs> No, I, I, I feel I feel yeah. a little bit vindicated. <laughs> I, I I don't know I don't know a whole lot of people who are feeling very uh, nostalgic about Urban. Okay, well, good, good. <laughs> and you know the the scary part is he's not even close to the most evil pope. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there've been some great popes. Don't get me wrong, but man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, the most famous crusade is not the first one, but the third one, as far as I know, yeah. and that is spearheaded mm-hmm. by Saladin on the Muslim side and Richard the First, Richard the Lionhearted, on the British. Uh, David, what was this crusade all about, and how was it influenced and controlled by these giant figures on either side? Well, um, funny thing about the Third Crusade is that it's the most famous, probably because it has these two giant men, right? Um, they're huge personalities, but the funny thing is, at the beginning, is that is that the Third Crusade pretty much ends where it begins. Um, you know, no, nobody the third the Third Crusade did not accomplish it go, its goals, but neither did Saladin. Um, uh, well, Saladin, Saladin was uh, initially a uh, an official in Cairo. Um, the um the fatimids in in cairo 
bolstered their position by hiring um, mercenary armies from various uh, various ethnicities, um, Albanians, Kurds, you know, folks from all over, um, you know, what what we now indiscriminately call uh, the Middle East were um, were pulled into the the armed forces, and but they were all very very distinct. So Saladin was uh, was a general, uh, a leader of a force of of Kurdish. Uh, Kurdish mercenaries, which uh, when you when you when you get, when you brought up uh, Saddam Hussein uh, seeing himself as a Latter Day Saladin, um, how ironic is that? Right, that, right. <laughs> Saladin was Kurdish. Um, anyway, Saladin was also a good politician, and even before the whole Crusades thing, um, he was all about consolidating his power. Um, in Cairo, which he did very handily, um, so that by the time the threat of the third, well, a- actually, uh, the Crusader states were still there, and so he made a name for himself, you know, combating them. Uh, eventually, he took uh, he retook Jerusalem, so uh, so Saladin uh, put m- moved Jerusalem over to that side of the chessboard. Right. Despite the best efforts of Orlando Bloom, yes, despite the best efforts of Legolas. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he was never really cut out to be a crusader, I don't think. Um, and this uh, this inspired the 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 third crusade, which was the Get Back Jerusalem Crusade. Um, and R- Richard the First ended up he was not initially the leader of it, um, uh, but he he kind of became the became the figurehead. Um, he was a good administrator. Uh, one of the things that, that I find um, him praised for in the histories is the fact that he actually brought his own boats. <laughs> he didn't show up with an army and ask a bunch of Italians to ferry him over. Um, and so he didn't have supply line, the same kind of supply line problems that some of the other crusaders did who, who just whipped up a bunch of guys with swords and marched to the beach and said, somebody, somebody take us to wherever – um, yeah, Richard had some notion of where he was going and how he was going to take care of himself when he got there. Um, he was also a big larger-than-life personality. Um, he would dive into battle himself. Uh, he, he had a reputation for valiance, which is why he got Lionheart appended to his name, though now all I can see is like the big anthropomorphic lion guy um, from Disney's version. Um <laughs> The funny thing is, is as as uh, as big a personality as he is, um, as as big a personality as both of them are, uh, the Third Crusade was really a stalemate. Um, it ended in 1192 with Saladin and Richard I making a treaty, which was the Crusader the Crusaders wouldn't make any more trouble. They got to keep the places that they held. Saladin got to keep Jerusalem, but he had to give safe conduct for the pilgrims. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and he had to give, um, he had to let Christian uh, clergy officiate in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, so, you know, so that was something, I guess. Anyway, it, it was kind of funny to me to look at the Third Crusade and know, you know, this is the one, you know, that has the personalities that, that are best remembered and yet it is the one that, that seems to have been the least uh, 
you know, the least actually effective from from either side. Which, which may be why we look back at it with kind of quasi fondness. <laughs> oh, that's true. Because because not only are there the the two giant figures on either side, you also you also have one that is not quite as awful mm-hmm. as some of the other crusades. Mm-hmm. That's true. And it, it it ended it ended, you know, it ended peacefully. Both of the two big personalities were still standing at the end of it. Neither side got curb stomped. Um, so, so yeah, you know, Richard Richard could go back home feeling like he'd done something good, and then get shot in the eye with a crossbow. Um, but you know, yeah, Third Crusade. Well, Nathan, I don't know about you, but I can't think about the Third Crusade without thinking about the story of Robin Hood, <laughs> in which Richard often plays a minor but important role. How do these, uh, how do the Robin Hood legends coil around the Crusades, and how have various presentations of them over the years functioned as a critique of the Crusades? Well, what's fascinating about this, and I, I had never thought about the history of you know that connection. I had always assumed it was always part of the Robin Hood stories, but. Uh, from what I can tell, I mean, you know, in William Langland and other actual medieval sources, you know, there's not a real strong connection of Robin Hood to any historical period. Huh. Uh, there's references to a king, uh, but not necessarily which king. You know, there's speculation they might be talking about a King Edward at some point. But as far as a particular year, that's not all that important in the medieval versions of Robin Hood. It's really not until the 16th century, the English Renaissance, that you start getting Robin Hood tied to the first, the Third Crusade, pardon me, to Richard I. Um, and the idea there, you know, seems to be that uh, in this period where, you know, succession is a question, you know, you have this sort of heroic rogue back home holding down the home front. And, you know, what I found even more interesting, and again, I, I was poking around several sources looking for this is that another element that I just always assumed was always part of Robin Hood, uh, namely his opposition to King John, uh, was something that really doesn't become prominent until much, much later than I thought. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the folks locate it, you know, sometime in the late 16th, early 17th century. Some people say, you know, it really doesn't become a core element until the Victorian period. So it's one of those things where Robin Hood's association with the Crusades uh, is something that's a very, very late development. Uh, Now, I mean, the legend that does develop and, you know, takes on its sort of canonical form as we imagine it during the Victorian period and then, of course, into the 20th century when it becomes part of the movies uh, is that... Russell Crowe told me that that it was... Never mind. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. we've slammed that movie so many times, <laughs> I, and I've still not seen it. So I, <laughs> I, I'm afraid I'll just have to slam it vicariously. Uh, but you know, what's interesting about the connection of Robin Hood is that the uh, and you know, it, you can almost hear the modern warfare legends that always seem to rise up when a powerful empire loses a war. But the idea is that while the heroic warrior element of the society is off fighting the good war. Uh, the sort of skulking scumbags of the society take over things in their absence. Uh, and Robin hood is one who, you know, he becomes the figure who resists that, uh, home front betrayal. 
So, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, if you think about the contours of the Robin Hood, King John, and Richard the Lionheart legend, uh, I mean, it feels a lot more modern than it does medieval anyway. Uh, so, uh, David, I, you know the Robin Hood stuff better than I do. I mean, what am I leaving out here? <laughs> um, well, it's, it, 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 it's, it's interesting because t- two things happen with um, – with the Robin Hood legend, one one is one is it's it, it gets appended to the Crusades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. They, it wasn't always appended to the Crusades. Right, he was um, just a thief before then. I had never traced down uh, the way you did um, when exactly it got tacked on. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm actually a little surprised at how late that was, but I didn't. Oh, I, I was didn't too. Know that it wasn't in the earliest stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, also missing. Um, there is some of the Norman Saxon tension in, in the early stuff, in the earlier stuff, but not really that much. That's also something that, that you see more of as it goes. Um, you know, so, you know, for the most part, the earliest Robin Hood stuff is about this trickster outlaw who plays pranks on the local you know, law enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like later, you know, it, ta- it takes later generations to, to make, to make Robin Hood about something else, you know? So I, I, I think that's, it's, it's pretty interesting what Robin Hood ended up getting made about. Mm hmm. Well, if uh, Robin Hood is the most famous representation of the Crusades, my favorite is probably the Chanson de Roland, which is mm-hmm. ostensibly about the exploits of Charlemagne, but which basically everyone agrees is really about the Crusades. <laughs> David, what does that Chanson have to tell us about how medieval Europeans saw their work in the Middle East? Mm, yeah. I, I mean, it's, well, like you said, it's not actually about a crusade. Um, it is about... Um, not uh not the initial defense of france from um from incursions uh from uh, then muslim dominated spain but one of the later um uh later later uh what am i trying to say it's one of the later campaigns when charlemagne was asked to intervene by uh uh, one of the the northern uh, Christian northern kingdoms of Spain uh, to try to uh, to intervene uh, on their behalf in in a war against um, you know their 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 Muslim neighbors and uh, on the way back from uh, from that particular expedition and, and you know according to according to history this happened you know Char- while Charlemagne's forces are are out um, you know. Are, are returning, uh, the the guys in the rear guard um, get ambushed, not by Muslims, but by Bosques. Yep. And uh, wiped out to a man. And somehow this story, um, you know, a few generations later, uh, gets picked up again and becomes, you know, the, the, the Song of Roland, um, which is... 
you know, about as epic as you get for, you know, 11, you know, early 11th century France. Um, the translation that I've got is Dorothy Sayers, which has a really nice introduction to it. Um, it's the, it's the Penguin Classics edition. Um, it's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot more, um, it's a lot more action packed than chivalric romance, um, proper. This is not Chrétien de Troyes, uh, King Arthur. This is, this is actually a lot more like, this is more like Beowulf than it is like King Arthur. It's not focused on courtly life. It's not focused on manners. It just loves battles. <laughs> um, it's much more focused on loyalty between uh, between lord and vassal, um, not so much on the uh, you know the the courtly love stuff that you get in later chivalric romance. But yeah, um, you can clearly see the Crusades lying in the background um, because the 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 ultimate opponents in this war um, are Muslims, Muslims in Spain. Um, and you can see, you know, and, you know, as you go through there, particularly towards the end when Charlemagne is going to avenge Roland's death. Sorry, spoilers. Roland dies. Um, and it takes forever. He just keeps talking. Um, when Charlemagne is avenging Roland's death, he is battling um, all of these uh, all these different uh Muslim princes and kings and uh, invoking God. The angel Gabriel uh, interferes in the final duel between Charlemagne and the head of the enemy forces. Um, in fact, Charlemagne actually uh, st you know, stops the duel at one point and asks the guy to convert <laughs> so that he can you know, you know, convert and we'll have peace. And uh, the Muslim refuses, so, so, the, so the, the duel can continue in a good conscience. Um, What's interesting, uh, to me anyway, is how much mirroring there is between the two sides in the Song of Roland. Um, Christians get named horses and named swords. Um, so do uh, the, the major Muslim characters. Um, you know, Charlemagne goes into, uh, goes into battle with, uh, with his sword Joyous and the the king of the pagans goes into battle with his sword precious which is <laughs> which, okay all right granted it sounds kind of silly but you know is it is it pink does it have does it have fake fur on the handle yeah it it, it rhinestones possibly precious. i don't know all right what what i'm trying to point out though is that um in in french they are um they are similar forms. They both they both in both of those adjectives in the same way. All right, they're very clearly mirrored. Um, they're both right bearded guys. <laughs> they're both invoking their deities, you know, and then one wins and one loses. And that that that's pretty interesting to me is is how um, non monstrous that last fight seems. To me. Mm -hmm. Although, man, there's some monstrous Muslims in that poem. No, no, that's true. That's true. I'm not denying that, but it, it's it's interesting to me that the ultimate battle um, doesn't look like you know doesn't look like 
Christian fighting Apollyon or Red Cross Knight fighting the dragon. It looks like, you know, <laughs> it looks like Captain Kirk fighting Mirror Universe Kirk. <laughs> you know, um, one of the funny things, too, about Song of Roland is how jacked up their notions of, of, of Islamic theology are. Uh-huh. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. they, they, they pray they, to they, Apollo, right? Uh, Apollyon, uh, Apollo, um, also, they, they seem to have this, this trinity of gods, Mahound, or Muhammad, um, Apollyon, and then Termagant, who, I don't know why, but I keep thinking about a bird. I, I don't know, I don't know why I think of birds, but, yeah, Termagant. Um, darned if I know where that comes from, but you see, you see those, those terms, cropping up in other medieval texts uh and the the muslims are pagan they are pagans um they're idolaters after the after the conquering of the muslims um charlemagne goes in and and destroys their mosques and burns the idols inside them which is kind of hilarious when you think about it and know anything about islam right mm-hmm. The, the poem's also notable for a speech by the French archbishop where he promises, I mean, what, what Pope Urban promises to the Crusaders. He promises that uh, anyone who dies in this fight is as good as someone who dies fully confessed. And right. Go well, convert them with your swords. <laughs> well, and Turpin dies fighting, too. So, yeah. Old, old Bishop Turpin. Also, of course, the... Uh, the scene where Roland blows his elephant horn so hard that his temple explodes. Yes. Well, yeah, well, they, I mean, they can't possibly let one of the Muslims take him out. Right. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that, the battle scenes in that poem are just bananas. <laughs> and then in the midst of all these, like, crazy crazy fight scenes, you get this genuine moment of friendship where uh, Roland's best friend accidentally hits him in the head with a sword, and he's like, "No bet, no, no, no problem. I, uh, you know, I love you. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're both about to die." <laughs> it's a very, very strange poem. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, I've read, I've read a lot. I've read a lot of chivalric romance, and the, the, I guess the battles seem less bananas to me because I know. Um, you know, fifty years from now, are people going to make much sense of the of the insane, shaky cam fight scenes that are you know all the rage in movies today? You know, to to me, it's kind of like that. You know, the 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 idiom of combat in in chivalric romance is is kind of like this this quirky thing that was part of the genre, and later generations are like, what? That's weird. <laughs> but you know. But yeah, it is bananas. Well, we've uh, we've talked about two of the most famous crusades. There are many more. Um, I said the ones I thought were interesting. Nathan, what interesting crusade stories am I leaving out? Uh, well, one that's always fascinated me, and uh, it's one of those, like David said at the top of the episode, that is strongly disputed uh, as far as its historicity is the Children's Crusade of 1212. Right 
this is one of those moments that gets recorded in various chronicles, uh, some in France, some in Germany. Uh, but the basic upshot of the thing is that a peasant boy, by some accounts about 12 years old, by some accounts a little bit older, uh, starts to go and rally the youth of Europe. Uh, apparently the fighting class, the Knights of Europe, had become weary of crusading uh, so this young man, inspired to continue the good work of Christ, uh, starts to gather the children of Europe, uh, and by some accounts, as many fifty as many as fifty thousand travel south over the Alps, uh, and pretty much that's where the stories leave off. Uh, they went over the Alps and they never came back. There's no real accounts of their reaching Jerusalem or even crossing the Mediterranean, uh, but it is this bizarre moment. Uh, where, again, you know, in their own day, uh, the Chronicles say, you know, these children put the adults to shame in their crusading zeal. Uh, but then, you know, 800 years later in 2012, uh, someone like me looks at it and says, oh my gosh, the crazy spread. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been an indelible metaphor in the modern world for everything that's wrong with the Crusades. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. You know, and, you know, famously, Kurt Vonnegut used it as a sort of unofficial subtitle for Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, you know, to refer to the very young men who were being conscripted into uh, German and American armies by the end of World War II. Uh, I mean, it, it is, I mean, it is just a very, very fitting metaphor for the madness that warfare brings. Mm. So, I mean... I, in in my mind, when I think of the Crusades, I mean that's always the first image that I have is you know fifty thousand children marching over the Alps, never to return. Mm. David, what do you got? Um, I didn't have a particular crusade in mind. Um, I, I I just have the the that ever fascinating um, group, the Templars. Mm, yeah. Um, the uh, the pseudo monastic uh, chivalric orders that sprang up uh, during during the Crusades started with the Hospitallers, who didn't have as cool a name, um, <laughs> even though they stuck out far longer. Um, right, right. Fought all the, the battles in white coats mm. <laughs> <laughs> with their with their mighty stethoscopes raised high. <laughs> um. No, the, 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 the Templars were, uh, you know, founded to defend the temple, um, temple mount. Um, and they, they had a, a rule like a monastic rule that was set up. Um, you know, they had this, this genuine desire, it seems to, uh, to be true Christian knights in this, uh, you know, very, uh, well, it's 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 something that again you know probably doesn't make a lot of sense um, to you, Nathan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was uh, the the idea was that their vocation was knighthood, their vocation was chivalry, mm -hmm. um, but their vocation needed to be in accord with their faith, and mm -hmm. so this was this was their attempt to do so. Um, Hey, and, David, it is no worse than I see in my church every Veterans Day and Memorial Day, so don't worry about that. 
<laughs> As a fan of the Assassin's Creed series, I can't uh, I, I can't listen to you defend the Templars here. They're an evil secret society that prolongs the Crusades <laughs> or whatever the heck they do in those games. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Because, as, a, as opposed uh, to the good secret society of the assassins. Yes, because the the assassins' perspective of the crusade is exactly the one we want to adopt. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah, the old it man is, of the mountain. That was the good guy. But I mean, it, it is funny that the Templars, not just in Assassin's Creed, they are an evil secret society in in several works of fiction. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're constantly invoked in, in, in conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, um, I mean, well, the Da Vinci Code is, is, is that's, that's the low-hanging fruit there. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's hardly the only one. Um, if you've ever read uh, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, mm-hmm. um, it, he, it, it's, it's almost a recurring theme how every conspiracy theory has to include the Templars at some point. And you can tell that someone's crazy when their explanation for what's wrong with the world begins to include the Templars. Um, I mean, so, now so, the, so this is sort of a highbrow Italian analog of Godwin's law. Yes, <laughs> it's it's the well, yeah. I guess nowadays the cons, you know conspiracies all have to go back to Nazis somehow. But, <laughs> you know, uh, in but hey, you know, the, tem- the, the Knights Teutons. Hello. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Whoa! It all makes sense. My mind, mind blown. blown. <laughs> you people. Um, yeah, but I mean, they were secretive even there in 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 their own day, um, and mm-hmm. ended up getting shut down um, because of well, ostensibly because of heresy, um, actually probably because they were rich and the French king owed them money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh yeah they they ended up being suppressed and 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 all of all of the story that surrounds that i think ends up generating this this mystique around them you know clearly they had secrets clearly they were up to something they were so well organized what were they what were they doing surely they weren't just you know international bankers or whatever mm-hmm. the build so. well they turned into the bildenberg group didn't they well, yeah, they, they they became uh they became international bankers. They became, you know, one of the you know, one of the sources for capital in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so Michael Corleone bought them out in Godfather 3. I never saw Godfather 3. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um yeah, the Crusades brought us the Templars and the Templars have brought us so much crazy crazy joy. Um, <laughs> you know. So, and somehow you know, George Lucas decides to get them tossed in with the Holy Grail, which has never, ever, ever made sense. But oh, that's r- oh my goodness! I forgot about that part of Last Crusade. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. <laughs> and and all of that, you know, all of that comes into you know the Da Vinci Code and all the rest of that. But there was, you know. That you, you you will look long and hard and fruitlessly to find anything in actual Templar lore, actual Templar documents, actual Templar anything that has to do with the Holy Grail. Right. Um, <laughs> honestly, I think that that's the, the, the need to connect those two is kind of like the need to connect Robin Hood with the Crusades. It's like Robin Hood's in the Middle Ages. The Crusades are in the Middle Ages. Let's put them together. 
I think it, I think it's kind of like that. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the Crusades are generally considered a black eye on Christian history. <laughs> Rightly so, I think. Uh, how should modern-day Christians who live in a pluralistic world view the actions of our spiritual forebearers? What do we need to repent for in the Crusades? Is there anything there that we ought to emulate? Let's start with you, David. Um, well, I want to start out by pointing out that um, wars in the name of religion or wars with a religious imprimatur um, are not novel <laughs> in history. Um, Urban didn't invent it. Um you know, to me, I, I see the Crusades as uh, Christendom falling into the same trap that just about every civilization and every religion associated with every other civilization has fallen to at fallen into at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, you know, in in seventeenth century Japan, you have you know the Tokugawa shogunate leading um, what is at least in 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 some parts a you know a a Buddhist crusade against, you know, Christian, you know, Christian daimyo. Um, you know, you have the same kind of wars of, of religion, you know, in Southeast Asia between, you know, different flavors of Buddhism. Um, you know, you have, well, even, even before, and one of the reasons why the, the first crusade was so successful is, is that the, uh, the, the two divided factions in the Middle East, the uh, Abbasids and the Fatimids, um, initially refused to take the Crusaders seriously because they were so kind of caught up in their own opposition for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you know the Crusades is wrong and Urban's theology is monstrous, but I see I see it not as a uniquely Christian problem. I see it as a problem in which. Um, Christendom lapsed into one of the moral knee jerks of most religions and most cultures. That was that I think was the failure. But that's just me. Nathan, tell me where I'm wrong. No, no, I, I like what I'm hearing, David. And I mean, one of the, there's two things that bug me about the Crusades, uh, and I'm, I'm talking mainly about the last ten years. Okay. Uh, one of them is. Uh, around 2003, and if our listeners don't know what major political uh, question was at hand in 2003, um, go to Wikipedia for pity's sake. Um, but in 2003, I mean, there were a series of articles, I remember this very, very clearly, uh, trying to do a sort of revisionist history saying that uh, the Crusades were a defensive war, uh, that they were a preemptive strike of sorts. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I think rhetorically that is just the wrong way to treat them. You know, I, I think David is absolutely right to say that this is a very, very human problem. Uh, it's not a uniquely Christian problem, but it is a problem. Uh, and to treat them as, you know, to sanitize them, basically, I'll put it that way, uh, is a historical mistake. I mean, this was as David said, a moment when uh, Christian theology took a swerve that we cannot excuse, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We can explain it. We can make it intelligible. I mean, 
I, I think it's I think it's analogous at the very least to what we talked about back with the Federalist Papers with the three fifths compromise. We can make sense of why they at the moment saw the need to do what they did, but we can never excuse it. Uh, now that's one extreme, the sort of revisionist history. Uh, it was probably a good thing that we had crusades. The other error I see is what David was nodding to, namely to say that uh, the Crusades were a function of Christian theology considered very, very broadly. Uh, you know, I mean, this was a historically contingent moment uh, in which Christian theology, frankly, went wrong. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I, I've heard and read in more than one place, and I mean, it's not just the new atheists, although they certainly beat this drum, it's also sort of self-loathing liberal Christians uh, who say that, you know, the Crusades are this uniquely evil phenomenon in world history. Uh, and honestly, I mean, it, it puts me into a bad position because my immediate temptation is to start sanitizing and saying, you know, well, in comparison to Joe Stalin, in comparison to this, in comparison <laughs> to that, you know, uh, when I really don't want to do that morally, right? I don't want to be the guy... Mm -hmm saying, well, the Crusades weren't all that bad, right? Uh, but, again, I mean, there are times, I'll, I'll just go ahead and confess some sins here, guys, uh, I don't have the moral strength to resist that. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, again, if we regard it with both historically rigorous methods uh, and if we regard it with a strong sense of morality and a strong sense of history that David too pointed to pointed to earlier, pardon me, uh, I think that the Crusades can be very, very instructive for us as a negative exemplar historically. I think that used in uh, what Richard Weaver would call based rhetorical manners, uh, the Crusades can drive us into vices that we we're probably going to find our way into anyway, but the Crusades just help us get there faster. Mm. Michael, wrap it up for us, man. Yeah, I can, I can, I mean, definitely agree with that. I think that the Crusades function as this thing Christians can apologize for. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the, the, this thing that lets us know that our history is not without blemish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a danger of what happens when the church gets entwined with the state. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that cheery subject aside, I, I, I'm sure there is much we did not say about the Crusades. It's a big subject. We probably could have done one of our triptych mm -hmm. episodes on it. So if you have something but to add, how depressing would that be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you have something to add to this discussion, by all means, let us know on Facebook. Let us know on our website, ChristianHumanist.org. Mm -hmm. uh, send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. David, what are we talking about next week? Uh, well, I, th I think we're, we're going to take a cue from Coyle and instead of stop, uh, instead of, uh, taking on either of the Romes he suggested, um, those are just really big. Uh, I do like, I, d I did like his suggestion of dystopias. Um, I think that, I think that will be fun. Sounds good. In the meantime, this is Michael Farmer for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Brother.